0: Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jefferies and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Laura Shen. She is a writer crypto journalist and podcaster, a former senior editor at Forbes, she left the magazine in 2018 to commit to her podcasts and videos, Unchained and Unconfirmed, which have had over 14 million downloads and views. Her new book is The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, which is published by our friends at Public Affairs. Laura, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: It is an honor to have you here. And Laura, um, first I'll have a couple of questions for you before we dive into the content of your excellent new book. And I want to talk to you about podcasting. When I started this podcast, which now has 160 something episode and tens of thousands of listeners and listeners, thank you for your support. When I started this podcast, I had two podcasters I looked to for inspiration, Michael Silverblatt with KCRW's Bookworm and you, who I've been listening to for a while now. So first, <laughs> thanks so much for the inspiration. It's- wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love your podcast. And second, what made you jump from traditional web journalism with Forbes into podcasting, specifically podcasting about cryptocurrency?
1: Well, so I didn't. Um, I I had actually started the podcast in 2016. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, you know, just go from being a print journalist to suddenly doing the podcast. I was doing them concurrently for a while. Mm -hmm. And actually, while I've been working um, what appears to be solely on the podcast, I've also been writing a book. So in 2018, when I left Forbes all my writing energy went into the book. So actually I was writing and podcasting again simultaneously. It's just that the final product for the writing won't be available to the public until February 22nd.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right on. And um, my last question before we dive into your book, um, excuse me, I've talked about your book to many friends and colleagues as I've been preparing for this interview. And I'm finding that folks tend to either be hyper-aware of everything going on with cryptocurrencies, or they find the concept of cryptocurrencies to be so daunting that they don't even know where to begin to understand uh, what they are. What do you think the concept of cryptocurrencies, what they are, how they function, why they exist, why do you think this is so hard for people to grasp or try to grasp? And when do you think we will reach a tipping point where the majority of the population, let's say the population in the USA, understands what it is?
1: I think the reason it's hard to grasp is because it enables new things that people aren't familiar with in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean, I think that this represents something pretty new in history. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea that you can have created something like Bitcoin, which I I don't know the exact market cap at this moment in time, but in recent history, it's been more than a trillion dollars. Mm. There's only a select group of companies that have achieved that kind of market cap. And those companies have these... Kind of like superstar CEOs that are household names at the head of those companies, and the idea that Bitcoin was created by somebody who nobody even knows who they are to this day, and then the community basically has propelled it to becoming the the um, you know the this big uh, crypto network that it is. That's just something that really hasn't been seen before. You know, we're used to the idea of a startup. But what is a decentralized network that has a lot of value? You know, that's something that people haven't come across before. And I think that's why, like, for instance, sometimes when I tell, um, if I'm, you know, talking with somebody who I don't really know or doesn't know me and I mention what I do, they'll say something like, oh, you know, I've always meant to buy Bitcoin stock.
0: Mm-hmm. Like,
1: you know, that like they, they have this conception, like it's a company or, you know, or, um, or like even... Uh, you know, if people talk about ether or whatever, like it's it's a similar thing. And they don't really understand like what it means to have this decentralized network and to have just open source code and like anybody who uh, takes an interest could work on it or, you know. And so I think that's why people, um, they, they don't have existing frameworks to think about all this. And I think that's why if you're going to learn about it, you know, it takes a little bit of effort. And that's why either people, You know, what happens is once you do put in that effort, then typically people fall down the rabbit hole, which is a very common phrase in crypto, Um, because then suddenly it's just like this light bulb goes, this light bulb goes off in your head and you're just like, oh, I have to learn everything about this. And I just, where is this all going? And like, you know, what I have been telling uh, people is that I feel, you know, I started covering crypto uh, six and a half years ago, Mm -hmm. and I feel like this whole time I've had a front row seat to the most suspenseful and exciting movie ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what I love about it is I'm like, oh, this movie is going to last decades. Like, you know, there's just all these twists and turns all the time. It's very fascinating. But yeah, you know, I had to put in the effort to have the background knowledge, to have it all make sense. And so that's why, yes, you either have people who know everything or not literally everything, but, you know, they try to keep Mm up or people who are like, whoa, I don't have time for all that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Laura. Now, let us discuss your excellent new book, The Cryptopians. And we're going to start for people who are unfamiliar with some kind of surface level questions. And then after the break, we'll dive a little deeper. But you were able to interview all of Ethereum's quote unquote co-founders for this book. For our listeners, can you briefly explain what is Ethereum and how does it differ from Bitcoin?
1: So, Ethereum, well, okay. So, actually, so I should just explain Bitcoin first.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So, Bitcoin is two things Bitcoin, the network, Mm -hmm. and then Bitcoin, the asset. And so, if you look at the white paper for Bitcoin, the subtitle says, A Peer to Peer Electronic Cash System. Mm. So, you could say that the network for Bitcoin was designed for payments. Mm. And the asset itself, maybe some people might say that it's designed to be more like digital gold. And that's actually how, at the moment, it's it tends to um, be treated more in transactions. Mm. But, um, you know, because the network has been designed for, these payments, it is you know, also possible to use it in that way. And um, and we will probably see that even more actually as time goes on for various reasons I don't need to get into right now. But um, at the time that Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, was learning about Bitcoin, there were a lot of other blockchains that people were working on. And the approach that they were taking was to add features. Uh, so, you know, beyond payments, like, you know, add a feature for derivatives or for a prediction market or, you know, whatever it might be. It was like, they would think, oh, we, we want to add on these additional things. Hmm. And he thought, well, you know, if you do it that way, then your new blockchain that you're working on is only going to be exciting and cool until somebody else creates a new one with yet another feature on it. Hmm and so he thought you know why can't it be more like an app store where um there is kind of like an open um design space and then any developer can say hey i have an idea for you know whatever prediction market a derivatives exchange what it could be you know anything and then like the app store they could actually just design that and upload it to this decentralized network that will enable any kind of decentralized application Mm -hmm. so that was the idea for ethereum and that is basically what it's become Mm -hmm. and so um, the way that they did that was by creating like a, a language and um this language is what enables these smart contracts that um as crypto people like to say uh you know have these arbitrarily uh, arbitrary capabilities that you know basically anybody can design anything on it
0: right thank you so much laura um you mentioned this earlier bitcoin was created around the 2008 financial crisis by a person um or entity named satoshi nakamoto um why did the 2008 crisis inspire the creation of bitcoin and who is Satoshi Nakamoto?
1: So because so Satoshi Nakamoto is uh, is not known. Uh, we don't know if it's, you know, a person or a group or or whatever. And so I can't really say what was in Satoshi's mind, except that there is one clue, which is that when the network finally got up and running, Satoshi put a message in the first what's called block of the blockchain. And a blockchain is basically like a timestamped ledger. So if you look at that, basically the first timestamp ever of the ledger, then um, there was a headline, which was, um, so I'm not going to remember the exact phrasing, but it's basically like January 3rd, 2009, Chancellor on the the brink of bailouts. And and it it was quoting this uh, Times of London, I guess, headline. Hmm. And so you know, basically uh, it's kind of like a little bit of political commentary there, you know, this person saying, oh, um, I'm creating this decentralized network um, with a new asset that is not one controlled by the government. It's not one controlled by banks. It's outside of that whole system. And they were doing this at the same time that the traditional financial system was uh, failing. And so, yeah, so that's why it does seem like they were seeming to say that they were inspired by the financial crisis. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And do you think it's possible that any of these folks um, claiming to be Satoshi, Craig Wright, Charles uh, Hoskinson, et cetera, do you think any of these people could possibly be Satoshi or will the world never know?
1: You know, I have to like, (laughs) I've always felt that this is a question that would take a lot of research to go into. Mm. And I personally have never done a significant amount of research into it. Mm -hmm. So I probably can't say, um, the one thing readers of my book will probably come to their own conclusion based off of, um, some events in the book about Charles Hoskinson. Mm -hmm. But as for Craig Wright, I have not done significant amounts of research, but at the moment it looks, um, you know, like probably not because he's been asked to do the one thing that would prove that he is Satoshi and Mm -hmm. hasn't done it. (laughs) So, although he did try to, to hoax the media into thinking that he had, um, but this was, I forget how many years ago now.
0: Mm (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. And um, as we sit here uh, recording, he just concluded a very high profile trial listeners, you can look that up if you like. Um, Back to Ethereum. uh, For our listeners, can you tell us who is Vitalik Buterin and why is he an important person to know?
1: So, Vitalik Buterin is the creator of Ethereum. And uh, when I say that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there are eight co founders, but it was his conception. And then uh, essentially these other co founders came on board. So, at the moment, um, he's still kind of seen as the main figurehead for Ethereum. And um, even when there were all these different co founders, even if some of them had titles that kind of would make them seem like they were the top executive. Mm -hmm. Um, people always just kind of looked to him for leadership. Um, one other thing I will say though, is, you know, as I mentioned earlier or no, maybe I didn't mention that, but, but he actually got his start. Oh yeah. I did briefly mention it. He Mm -hmm. got his start, uh, writing about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So actually in the beginning, he was kind of Uh, basically a Bitcoiner and he was an owner of Bitcoin Magazine. And then, yeah, since starting Ethereum, you know, he did that when he was basically like 19 and (laughs) I think grew up a lot along the way because there was a lot he, you know, kind of probably wasn't super prepared for being that age, starting something that valuable and having uh, a lot of people around him who are very interested in getting a piece of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Laura. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. Then I will be right back with Laura Shen. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from Booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L I B R O.fm, and enter Bookin, B O O K I N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians, which is published by our friends, Public Affairs. Laura, we spent some time before the break talking about some very basic ideas and introducing people to concepts and people involved in cryptocurrency, specifically Ethereum. I now want to go a little deeper, and I want to talk about Charles Hoskinson. How was this gentleman, Charles, involved in the creation of Ethereum other than giving someone the thumbs up to fund Vitalik when he was working on it?
1: Well, he became one of the eight co-founders and he asked for and was given the CEO role. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, basically the Um, Ethereum community kind of, or or the Ethereum founding group had a kind of a segment of them that were living in Zug in Switzerland, Switzerland, Mm -hmm. which is where they had decided that they would set up shop to do the crowd sale that would fund the development of Ethereum. And he was living with this group at that time. And there was a lot of uh, there were some tensions in the house mm-hmm. and people were concerned about him. And so as people will read in the book, spoiler alert, um, if you <laughs> if you know anything about crypto, then this is like such long ago history. Hopefully I'm not spoiling anything for anybody. But um, eventually he was removed from the project and later on has gone on to found um, his own blockchain called Cardano. And for a while he, and he may still, I I actually don't know the facts on this, but, um, he was working on Ethereum classic, which is as I like to call it the evil twin of Ethereum.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And is he just a hype man or has he been involved at some point with the work involved in the actual creation of something?
1: Um, wait, are you like meaning Cardano or? Um,
0: yeah, sure. Or or Ethereum Classic or, or any of that.
1: Well, um, you know, this is not a question I've looked into in terms of his level of engagement with like development. Mm-hmm. But um, I think at least for Ethereum, he was not one of the developers. He really had that executive role and was doing kind of more business type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he has a company called IOHK, which they... You know, b- develop all these different blockchains, but I'm not sure how involved he is on a day to day level with the development of the actual blockchains.
0: Right. And I um, thank you, Laura. And I ask these questions because when you see Charles Hoskinson now, his name is always followed by one of the creators of Ethereum, uh, which gives him a substantial chunk of cachet, um, especially if you don't know any better and may cause folks to invest in something. Like Cardano, Um, do you think that Cardano should be compared to Ethereum? Is it a justifiable comparison?
1: Um. (laughs) Well, so I also have not looked super closely at Cardano, Mm -hmm. but I do know that probably on a basic level it. Uh, isn't quite the same type of blockchain because Ethereum does smart contracts, but Cardano uh, tried to um, launch smart contracts on the platform and it, it really didn't go well. So um, I'm actually not sure what what the purpose of Cardano is now that I think about it. Um <laughs> But um yeah, I at the moment don't think that anybody would say that they're competing because there are actually all these other blockchains that definitely directly compete with Ethereum mm-hmm. and they're trying to take market share from them. But since Cardano doesn't have that core functionality that Ethereum does, it probably isn't in that same position.
0: Right. Thank you, Laura. Um, You alluded to this a bit earlier uh, when you were introducing folks to the concept of what Bitcoin is. Uh, When Bitcoin was first created, a lot of folks considered it to be a form of currency like digital cash, but very early, Um, in your book, at least one of the founders of Ethereum that you covered compared Bitcoin to gold. It seems like this is most definitely a shift in narrative that has become the overwhelming argument for Bitcoin over the past um, few years, that is, that Bitcoin is a store of value like gold. Uh, Was this always the case or did Vitalik, for example, view it as a currency when he was creating Ethereum?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean... I I would say that in the beginning, probably it was seen more as both and that as time has gone on, Bitcoin has taken on. Um, not only the narrative, but also uh, the behaviors of digital gold. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing is that in the last year, there have been a few developments where I wonder how much that's going to shift because El Salvador now has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. Mm -hmm. And so obviously like all the, like, actually, (laughs) I think it's mandated there that the stores have to accept Bitcoin as payment, you know, how frequently it will be used in that way probably remains to be seen but uh, cuz this only just happened actually a few months ago but um certainly there is a lot of potential there um and there's also um what's being called a layer 2 on top of bitcoin mm. uh, so basically um, when certain blockchains become congested, it's sort of like surge pricing, where the fees to transact go up. And this is the case on Bitcoin and Ethereum, particular um, those two chains. At the moment, there's a lot of competition for block space on those chains, and so the mm-hmm. fees are high. And so people wanting to make payments using Bitcoin probably are, you know, going to think, "Oh, I'm not going to pay these high fees." Um, so People are working on the development of what's called the Lightning Network, which is used for payments, and so that could also kind of spur more payment activity. But you're right that I would say for the last few years, Bitcoin really has been more like digital gold.
0: Right. Thank you so much, Laura. And did Vitalik ever mean for Ether, um, not Ethereum, but Ether specifically, to be a currency, or was it always supposed to be something that paid for fees in the Ethereum network?
1: Uh, I think it was always meant to pay for fees for uh, um what's called gas on ethereum. so basically, since ethereum some sometimes people call it this world computer for decentralized applications um but the way that it functioned was that you would pay and or and continues to function is that you pay for gas Mm -hmm. mean or for computation Mm -hmm. so when you make your um transaction or whatever it might be depending on how complex it is Mm -hmm. it could cost a little bit of gas or a lot of gas and that's because you know if it's if it doesn't take much computation then the fee will be low and if it takes a lot then the fee will be higher
0: right on thank you laura um if vitalik when he was creating ethereum could see into the future and see jp morgan and the like throwing so much money at bitcoin ethereum um etc do you think he would have moved forward with creating it
1: oh um hmm. well i you know i can't really speculate on his mental state but um oh actually You know what's funny? I asked him a very similar question now that I think about it. When When he first came on my podcast in 2018, I asked him about how he had previously done an interview where he said something about, how what he was building was for the little guy. Mm -hmm. And then I, I asked him pretty much exactly what you asked. Like, Oh, now there are (laughs) at least corporations. And then he said that he had a more nuanced view of the world and um, didn't necessarily maybe because he had met more corporate types and he realized like, Oh, there are people like us or whatever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, uh, he, basically seemed to say that he didn't necessarily think that they were trying to do bad things either. So,
0: Hmm.
1: um, so maybe, yeah, he has had a a change of opinion on that.
0: Right. Thank you. And listeners again, I want to throw in another, uh, plug for Laura's podcast, um, unchained in those episodes with Vitalik are fantastic. Please, please, uh, go listen to those. Um, What can we tell you, you alluded to this a little bit earlier as well. um, When we were talking about Charles Hoskinson and becoming the CEO of Ethereum, what can we tell about the difference between Vitalik and Charles Hoskinson based on the titles they gave themselves regarding Ethereum CEO uh, for Charles Hoskinson versus C3PO for Vitalik?
1: Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for people to read the book because wow. um, one of the early readers who wrote a blurb said something like um, that the book gives a view into the human side of Vitalik as never seen before. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that this fact may have been known about him, but um but regardless, yeah, he's just the kind of person he is not, he doesn't care about hierarchies and titles and things like that. And, um, he's very, well, at least early on for sure, he was kind of innocent and naive. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think now he still has some of those qualities, but having been through all that he's been through since starting Ethereum, he's definitely grown up a lot and has a lot more awareness about, uh, different people's motivations and, um, how that might translate into whether or not their actions with him are genuine or not. Um, But certainly one theme that uh, I try to draw out in the book is that the developers really kind of disdain businessmen and um, and business in general. And so there's a lot of conflicts in the book that are kind of like between the developers and then the business people. Mm -hmm. And um, people can read the book to see what happens in terms of who prevails.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Laura, when I was reading this book, I was reminded of um, the social network. And I like your book a lot better, you know, partially because I'm way more mentally and um, financially invested in in cryptocurrency than I am in Facebook. Um, But when your book is made into a film, who's going to play Vitalik, do you think?
1: (laughs) Um, hmm. you know, this is funny. I, I'm, I, I can't really say because, you know, I'm one of those people where if I'm presented with the choice between reading a book and watching a movie, I will pretty much always read the book. So I'm not a big movie person and I Mm -hmm. don't know all the different actors. Um, I, uh, I'll have to think about this.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take a rain check on that. And if you're going to think about it, tell me who would play Charles, too. I'm very interested. (laughs) Um, Outside of your book, for just a moment, um, do you think uh, that privacy currencies like Monero and Zcash are important or dangerous? And I ask because uh, at some juncture, Zuko Wilcox, the creator of Zcash, was involved with trying to incorporate uh, Zcash technology into Ethereum.
1: Oh, I think they're important. Mm -hmm. I mean, privacy is important. It's like a fundamental human right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's kind of inevitable that this technology will be be more widely used. Like, I don't know if you followed uh, Quentin Tarantino's NFTs, but he's he's using the Secret Network, which is a smart contract blockchain that has default privacy built in. Mm-hmm. Meaning, so right now on Ethereum, I. Can use a block explorer to see all the different transactions and i did that for the book if you mm-hmm. notice my extensive footnotes mm-hmm. um, i you know i tracked all all this stuff on the blockchain It was super fun mm-hmm. um but there are going to be a lot of people who are not going to want all of their financial traction transactions to be seen mm-hmm. and so um quentin tarantino probably keeping in mind kind of one of the critiques of nfts oh if i if i can see the video then you know Wait, and or i can own the photo or whatever then why is it uh why why would you spend a million dollars on your nft <laughs> mm-hmm. um and so the nfts that he uh sold were ones where they will only be viewable by the nft owner and you know i i can imagine many more people will have other reasons that they'll want to use private blockchains and um yeah i only expect that trend to grow bigger
0: Absolutely thank you Laura. And finally, uh because we are a podcast that is presented by a bookstore and recording within a bookstore, I have to ask, uh you write about a short story that Vitalik wrote about a Christmas gift exchange. Uh is this available anywhere or how did you hear about it?
1: I obtained a copy of it. Um I don't know if I can say who the source was. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So, um you know, I mean, I do say where he went to high school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if if that high school wants to make it public, <laughs> then, um, or or if he himself does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean that, yeah, I, I'm excited for people to read the book because it really displayed a certain level of social awareness that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people at that time thought Vitalik didn't have, mm-hmm. which is kind of fascinating. So, um, you know, he, he's definitely at least an astute observer of people, Mm -hmm. Um, even if there were times during the creation of Ethereum when he seemed to be a little bit blind to some of the motives around him.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Laura, and thank you for writing this wonderful book. I can't wait for people to read it. I'm going to sell the heck out of it. I think that it's a no-brainer for people who know about cryptocurrency, who are invested in cryptocurrency, who listen to your podcast, but also for people who are curious or who don't understand it. I think it's going to humanize some things and open a lot of people's eyes. Listeners, I have been joined by Laura Shen, author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, in the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, which is published by our friends at Public Affairs. Laura, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. This was super fun.
0: Once again, I would like to thank Laura Shin for joining me. Signed copies of The Cryptopian's Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Reader's Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro FM and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.